But it's great to be able to be gathered like this, isn't it? You know, there's many places that were going to meet in camps and conferences and it didn't come to pass. And by the Lord's grace, He's opened a way for us to be here. And uh, for that very reason, we know the Lord has a purpose in gathering us together like this. So every session is important. Every moment that we spend together is important in these days. We want to redeem the time, don't we? I wonder if you turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians. And uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 15. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Amen. Praise God for his word. Message for this three sessions. It's under the title, The Threefold Need for Revelation. Threefold Need for Revelation. Let's begin with a further word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us again. Dear Heavenly Father, we are pleading with you, really, that you would not pass us by. As we come before you, we know that of ourselves we can do nothing. And Lord, we are asking you to graciously anoint the speaking of your word and the hearing of it. And that as your word goes forth, it would do so under the influence and anointing power of the Holy Spirit. We are asking you, Lord, that you would deliver us from the opinions of men. We pray that you'd save this congregation from merely the thoughts uh, that are of the natural man. But Lord, you would lift us up into the heavenlies, even this morning, and grant us a glimpse of something of the glory of Christ. And that you would grant us an open heaven this morning so that we may behold spiritual things spiritually. We ask for your aid and for your enabling, without which, Lord, we will flounder. So, Lord, be gracious, be merciful, cleanse us from any sin that would hinder our way with you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that the world would be mixed with faith so that we may respond to what you say in according to your will and purpose. We ask all these things, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Praise the Lord. Well, I want to draw your attention back to verse 17 particularly this morning. And in verse 17, well, let's look at it from verse 16. Paul says that he doesn't cease to give thanks for this church at Ephesus and he's making mention of them in his prayers. He's praying for this church and he lets us know specifically what the prayer is that is on his heart for the believers at Ephesus. And it says in verse 17, first of all, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the knowledge of Him. One thing that is so needful in our day within the church but is sadly lacking is a full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems an astonishing thing to say, but there is a lack of knowledge amongst the people of God concerning the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Himself. And we lack an understanding of who He is and His ways, generally speaking. There are, of course, exceptions, praise God for that. But generally speaking, we are a people that really don't know our God as we ought. And we are a people that are lacking in knowledge. And as a result of the lack of knowledge, we find ourselves in all kinds of problems. You see, if you lack knowledge, spiritually speaking, you are vulnerable to deception. You are vulnerable to the dictates and clever schemings of the powers of darkness. Because the enemy is not a gentleman. If he knows that you're lacking in knowledge in some particular area, he's going to prey upon it to try and lure you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the enemy's purpose is to get your attention away from the Lord Jesus and to quietly get you fascinated with something other than Christ that appears to be of Christ, but actually isn't. It has an element of Christ in the sense that it speaks of the things of God, but somehow there's a different spirit behind And it's the knowledge of God that will preserve you from deception. It's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus that preserves us from coming into condemnation of the enemy also. I think you will agree with me, at least I hope you will, some of you will agree with me, that many Christians in this country are in spiritual paralysis because of the condemnation of the enemy and they think it's the Lord. They're under a weight, they're under some kind of heaviness. They're under a load that the Lord hasn't required of them to take up. But due to the fact that they feel compelled to do whatever they're doing, they do it. Not realising that the Spirit of God convicts rather than compels in an aggressive manner. But you see, it's a lack of knowledge of the Lord that leads us into doing things that bring us into deception. And bring us into condemnation. Bring us into bondage, into restriction, into captivity. 
And that's exactly what we read about the people of Israel in the book of Isaiah. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, we read from verse 12, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 12. This is speaking about the Lord's people who backslidden, they weren't walking with God at this time by and large. And we read from verse 11, the Lord says, Well unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night till wine inflame them, and the harp and the viol and the tambret and pipe and wine are in their feasts. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of His hands. Now isn't that an interesting statement? Are we those, brothers and sisters, are we those that firstly, listen, that firstly regard the work of the Lord? Let me ask you this morning, have you regard for the work of the Lord? When you see God work, have you regard for it? Do you take note of it? Do you consider it? Do you ponder upon it? Secondly, do we consider the operation of His hands? Do we see the way the Lord works? Do we take it to heart when the Lord is speaking into our lives? Or do we let it go? Do we hold it loosely? Now look what he goes on to say in verse 13. Therefore, this is the Lord speaking, my people are gone into captivity. Why? Because they have no knowledge. Is it possible that the people of God can be without the knowledge of God? Well, just look here. Are we not all in a sense, held to account over these verses. None of us knows we all the Word of God says anyway. But the truth is that the people of God go into captivity for lack of knowledge. And if you are a child of God and you are bound by the condemnation of the enemy, maybe it's because you lack the knowledge to truly realise that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you say to me, I'm still in bondage, but I know that verse. You know the verse, but let me ask you this. Do you know the verse in your heart? Assenting to the Word of God is not necessarily receiving it. By which I mean this. You may go out of this service this morning, and I hope you will, believing that what has been spoken was according to the Word of God, and you agree with what I say. I'd be really pleased if you do, I'd like that. I'm not too happy when people don't like what I'm saying because it gets me concerned if I'm not careful. What have I said wrong? But actually, for people to go out of this place and yes, John, we agree with what you've said. This is the Word of God. But you haven't received what God is saying into your heart for yourself by the Spirit 
through your hearing of, this, of the Word of God, then this session remains void of profit in your life. Listen, Satan knows that the Word of God is real. God wants us to get a little deeper than that, doesn't he? It means that when the Spirit speaks into your life, he wants that Word to take root in you. And it's that Word that will set you free. You remember what the Lord Jesus said? John chapter 8 and verse 32. John chapter 8. We could quote this by heart. Of my heart, some of us anyway. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now that knowing isn't merely a form of head knowledge whereby you agree with what's being said, but the receiving of that word into the very depths of your heart. And that brings me on to what Paul goes on, to, just says a little bit earlier in verse 17 of Ephesians. Remember, in chapter 1, he's, he talks about the knowledge of Christ, but he speaks of it in relation to the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He says that the Father of glory, take note of that phrase please, the Father of glory, Probably we'll come back to that later. May give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. You see, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. They're not discerned by mere academic understanding. Thank God. Otherwise, those who had a good IQ within the house of God would know more than anybody else and get even bigger heads than they probably have now. But the point of the matter is, that's not how we come into spiritual knowledge with the Lord. That's not the way we come into the knowledge of Christ. It's by means of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of God must open your eyes for you to come into true spiritual knowledge. And he will do so by means of opening the scriptures to you. And you will see the Lord Jesus. And it's in seeing Christ in the Word of God that you will be changed. Because when the Spirit of God brings revelation through the Word of God to your life, it affects you. It's not academic. It's not cerebral. It is eternal. Something wrought in your life. You see, everything that God does is eternal. Because God is eternal. When he touches something, it's of eternal worth because God is eternal. And when he opens your eyes to Christ, you won't be the same again. It's like light coming into the dark place of your soul. And I tell you, when the Lord Jesus reveals something of his brightness to you, oh, it shows up a lot of dirt. But it does so not to condemn the child of God, but to deliver him from everything that the Lord is opposed to in him. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 
and verse 14 from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 it says this but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God you see if Dion was speaking last night about examine yourself whether you're in the faith examine yourself whether you really are in the understanding of salvation because if you're purely in the natural man nothing I'm saying this morning will in any way affect you unless the spirit of God does work in you you just won't be interested the natural man isn't interested in the things of God. It's foolishness to him. But what do we read here? But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Wow. The natural man is unable to understand because they are spiritually discernment. Okay, so let's have an example of someone who receives spiritual revelation. Matthew chapter 16, please, and verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, please, and verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and some Jeremiah, sorry, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? What a question that is. I wonder if I went to every one of us in this room and I said, who do you say the Lord Jesus is? Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What a revelation. Peter is such an impetuous type of character. Oh, doesn't it give you hope? And look what he says in verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Revelation. The Lord Jesus isn't in person with us today, but he sent his Holy Spirit, thank God. And his presence is with us, and his Spirit indwells the believer, and gives the believer an anointing to understand the Word of God. So you shouldn't forever be having to depend on other people for your bread. Go to the, the Lord yourself. Open the Word of God and say, Lord, open these scriptures to me by your Spirit. Because I tell you, dear friends, there's no teacher on any platform in any era who's as true a teacher as the Holy Spirit. He's the best teacher you can get. There's nobody like him. And when the Spirit of God teaches you, you'll be challenged. Now, we need teachers in the church to be able to 
show us where perhaps we're going wrong on some things or another, and to feed the flock and so forth. But never to substitute your own relationship with the Lord. If you've got a choice between watching a good message on YouTube or meditating in the Word of God and it's one or the other, go with the Word of God. Get before God and let the Spirit of God teach you. He will, Jesus has promised, lead us into all truths. No preacher of himself can do that. Preachers make mistakes sometimes. But the Holy Spirit is always accurate. And he will reveal the Lord Jesus to you. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, friends. He comes to you and he says to you, Now Sarah, now Peter, now James, now David, now I reside in you. Let me show to you the Lord Jesus. Essentially, that's what he does. That's his ministry. Do you know it? Well, we're all growing, aren't we? We're all growing and learning. And some of us are at different stages than others. And the Lord will never allow you to receive more than you can bear at any time. But please, get look into the Lord. Meditate in the Word of God. Allow the Spirit of God to open your eyes to Christ. Back to Ephesians 1. And in verse 17, we read about the Spirit of of wisdom and revelation. Do you know, dear friends, I was just struck by something here as I was pondering these verses. If I need revelation for spiritual knowledge, and without spiritual knowledge, I can go into spiritual captivity, it shows that I am entirely dependent on the Lord Jesus for help. So many Christians, they live their lives as though the Lord Jesus almost didn't exist. I mean, how do you know whether you're really leaning on the Lord Jesus? How do you know whether your life, personally, is utterly dependent on Him in reality? And the answer is, just take Him out of Would you fall apart? Or could you still continue living the way you it's a frightening thought. But if we take heed of the Word of God, we notice that without the Spirit of God, we flounder in relation to understanding the Word. And secondly, I notice that Paul doesn't seem to simply want to explain everything to these people about everything that is on his heart. He says, I'm praying. Paul is praying that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He doesn't seek to bring about the revelation by his own skill and ingenuity, even though he had had multiple revelations. He's looking to the Lord for them. Are you looking to the Lord for you? What about your family? Well, it's a terrible thing about blindness is it makes us come to a point where we almost have contempt for things that are precious. We don't realize what we have. May God open our eyes. Let's move on. God, give you, dear friends, I pray for you. Lord, give my brothers and sisters the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge 
of Christ. You know, dear friends, we are lacking revelation in this day, in the church and in this nation. This is a nation that wants new world. And we have gone far from the Word of God. I was saying with the, the fellowship at Court Farm just a week ago, the amount of ministers that God raised up in this country in previous centuries are name after name after name after name. We could go back to the Puritans, to Thomas Watson, to Thomas Brooks, to John Bunyan, to John Owen, to various name after name after name. These were all at the same time. And then you had the people that our brother Dion mentioned earlier, C.H. Spurgeon, preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in front of 6,000 people every week. You have ministers like him in the pulpit. You have ministers like the first Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryan, in the Church of England. Light was there. But the light is coming out. It's dim in our nation. And I shared with the fellowship last week, we are living as it were, as in the days of Eli the high priest. That era in Israel's history is a good illustration of where we are as a people in the church and as a nation in Great Britain in our day. One of you turn with me to 1 Samuel 3 quickly, and we'll see this. 1 Samuel chapter 3. I want to read from verse 1. The scriptures say, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Did you see the link between two words that we've already married, seen married together? The word of the Lord and revelation. It's here in 1 Samuel 3 as well. And in this passage it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The word of the Lord was rare. There was no widespread revelation. And then we go on to read this. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Now this is speaking about Eli's physical condition but it's also a reality concerning his spiritual condition. As the high priest, his eyes spiritually had begun to grow dim to the point where he almost couldn't see. And then we go on to read in the next verse that the lamp of God had just about not gone out in the temple. Now you go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 27, from about verse 20, you'll find that the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, the menorah, the light that would shine, was never to go out. And it was to be trimmed regularly. And during the night, the lamp was growing dim. And although it needed to be retrimmed, the point is at this point, when it's speaking about Eli, in his eyes being dim, it speaks about the light just about not gone out. And that was a true expression of the condition of the people of Israel in the day of Eli. 
The light had just about not gone out. That Eli's sons were creating havoc in the house of God. They were behaving immorally, irresponsibly, kicking against the sacrifices. They were doing all kinds of things that were contrary to the will and purpose of God. And the light was in danger of going out. Now that lampstand represents the Lord Jesus, but the oil of the lamp represents the Holy Spirit. And that light was to shine across the tabernacle to the other side of the holy place where it shone upon the showbread that represents the Word of God. The word was to be illuminated by the light through the oil of the lamp. And God wants that for you. But you see, that revelation is rare in our day, isn't it? It was during the 1600s. It was during the time when the people of God were under persecution in our country that Ridley and Latimer were sent to the stake to be burnt. There's a lot of Christians that burnt this country is soaked in the blood of the martyrs. And there were Ridley and Latimer who were going to the state because they refused the teaching of transubstantiation and certain things involved with Roman Catholicism. And as, a, as they went to the state, Latimer said to Ridley this, and you'll find it in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he said, Play the man, Ridley, for we shall light a candle in this day that shall never go out in Britain by trust by the will of God and they both played the man and they both were set alight themselves that the light of the gospel may continue in our country but I want to tell you that light is in danger of going out the testimony and Satan hates what God has done in Great Britain not just in England, in Scotland with the Covenanters. Samuel Rutherford and others stood standing on the Word of God. Where are we today? Little revelation, just as in the days of Eli. But remember this, at the same time there was this spiritual declension in the nation of Israel. God had found a way of bringing a woman to such a degree of intercession that she was willing to give her child, if the Lord gave her a child, back to the Lord for the rest of his days. And that was Samuel, was born through Hannah's intercession. What is going to be the sparing of the church of God in Britain? What is going to be the bringing back of illumination and revelation within the house of God? Men and women interceding for the Intercessions here. But we live as in the days of Eli. But thank God he raised up a man to bring about something of a bringing back of the people of God to himself. And the Lord was once again known and shining. The scriptures say that. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, we read that. Uh, let me just read this verse, next verse on. It goes in verse 18 to speak about, in a sense, what happens when we have this revelation of the Spirit of God. Verse 18 says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The word understanding there means a thinking over. It denotes the faculty of thinking, then of knowing. 
hence understanding. Literally a thinking through or over, and it speaks of a meditation. When you open the Word of God, do you simply read the Word of God through? That's good. But there's something vital that's often not spoke about in church life. The importance of Bible meditation. Meditation. How many times in the Old Testament do you get this word, meditate? Meditate. Meditation. You've got it in the first psalm. Do you remember what it says in Psalm 1? Blessed is a man who does not walk, does not do certain things. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates. Needs to ponder, to think, to chew over. The word of God. You can't do that if you're quickly skim reading. You need a few verses and meditate. And allow, as you're thinking, the Holy Spirit to give revelation and light into your thoughts. Bible meditation is an Eastern forms of meditation. In Eastern forms of meditation, you empty your mind. In Bible meditation, you are filling your mind with the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to bring the light in as you are thinking. Think as you reflect, meditate on the Word of God. And as you meditate, the Spirit will open your eyes, the eyes of your understanding. Remember what it says in Romans 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But how's your mind going to be renewed if you're not in the Word? Be in the Word and meditate, and your mind will be renewed by the Spirit of God, enlightening your mind through the Scriptures, essentially. So we desperately need this understanding coming our way. Now, the question is, why is Paul praying that they might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? In what way is he doing it? Well, let's just end by looking at this section of verse uh, 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, knowing there speaks of seeing from the Greek. That you may know, remember, with your eyes, what do you do? You, you look, don't you? You see. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's the first thing. Done with this, we're in this morning. What is the hope of his calling? I wonder again if I did this, and I wouldn't do it because it wouldn't be fair. And I've prepared the message so I know the answers. That's why it's always better be in this side of the lectern when questions come out. <laughs> Because as long as it's on the topic, you've prepared. So, the question is, if I came to you and I said, Dear brother, sister, what is the hope of your calling? I wonder what you say. Let me ask you this, do you know what is the hope of your calling? Somebody mentioned uh, David Borson yesterday. David Borson used to have a clever little phrase that he switched round from... Um, 1 Corinthians 13, and he spoke on it in a message I had him give you a number of years ago in Guildford. And he said this, Faith, hope, and love abide, but the weakest of these is hope. <laughs> that's true. When you look at people around you in society today, there's a hopelessness about them. You look at children, their eyes are old before they're young. 
There's an emptiness. There's a looking down at the ground all the time. There's a, they're vacant. There's no life. There's a lot of depression. A lot of mental illness. Lots of all kinds of darkness, which is symptomatic of the fact that we've removed ourselves from the only one who can do us any good, and from the system of living waters. We have removed ourselves from the place of life, and we've gone into death. And so there's depression, there's darkness, there's hopelessness, there is the shattering of family life. And people are vulnerable and empty. But even in the church, there's a darkness that can People who are not born again, they come in, they haven't seen. And the word isn't preached. Where do they go? Where do they go? The eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The Lord, if you're born again of the Spirit this morning, the Lord came to you and he called you. He called you with a purpose in his mind. He called you with a purpose he had for you before as yet you were not created. Before this world was formed, in the person of the Lord Jesus, if you were born again, God had a plan to call you and to bring you to Himself. This is tremendous. This is tremendous. Look with me, please, to 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. Look what it says here who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Isn't that amazing? This calling of God on your life was given to you in the Lord Jesus, before the world even was brought into being. It was arranged in the eternal counsel of the Godhead that you would be called before he even from you. Amazing. And it's not according to our works. You see, it can't be if God arranged it beforehand. You see, if it was according to our works, we would never reach the qualification of the calling of God. Because I have to tell you, dear friends, you're not good enough. And I have to tell you that I'm not good enough. None of us could ever be qualified to be called from God. None of us. We are all wretched sinners and by nature rebels. We hate the things of God. And it's mere humanism to realise, to think rather, that we could possibly attain to the calling of God. 
you know, God saw something that I was doing quite well, and so he decided to call me. It's nonsense. If you knew the real John, the old John Hayward, if you knew, he said, right off. I thank God that the Lord Jesus placed him into his death. And I've been buried with him in baptism and raised up to newness of life. And now I'm a new creation in Christ. You see, the old has passed away. Everything becomes new. None of us are qualified to be called. But whom God calls, He qualifies. Do you realize how much you're loved by God that He planned to save you before you were even born? Before you could do anything good or evil. You say, why did he call me? Why then did he set his love upon me? I must tell you, I have no idea. And it's not because I think you're horrible. It's just because I can't imagine why he loves you. I'm not speaking of you personally, brother, but I can't imagine why he would... I just like to look at people when I talk to them, you see. I can't imagine why he would love you. I can't imagine why he, even more so, would love me, because I know me better than you. It's a mystery. It's humanism that tries to sort it out. Leave it in the counsel of God. Won't you do everything right? Of course he will. God has called you with a holy calling. And the wonderful thing is, it says in Romans 11, verse 29, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means without repentance. God didn't think halfway down the line when he'd saved you a year. Well, I just don't know about so-and-so. I thought they'd be something quite different once I... And now look at them, we'll have to get rid of them. God knew what he was doing before. And he called you. And his calling was in relation to a hope that he had specifically for you. Now this is where we get to the crux of the message. What is the hope of his calling. It's already been mentioned this week. The verse that reveals the hope of the calling of the believer. The hope of his calling is found in Colossians 1, where Paul says, Christ in the hope of glory. When God called you, he didn't call you simply to go to three mile cross every week, to go to Court Farm Church every week. He didn't call you simply because he had a purpose for you in this life. He has called you with a holy, heavenly, high calling, that's calling mentioned three times in relation to those three ages, if you like alliteration. He has called you to glory. Ultimately, to be 
Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29. Please read these verses with me. Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he knew you beforehand, didn't he? We've already seen that through the scriptures, haven't we? He also did predestinate. It's a long word, isn't it? But choose you beforehand. What is it for? To be conformed to the image of his Son. If you're born again of the Spirit at the moment, the work of the Spirit of God, my dear friend, in your life is to conform you to the image of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's doing. Blessed be the precious work of the Holy Spirit who conforms us to the loveliness, comeliness, beauty, patience, love, holiness, loveliness of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit's doing. He's working inside of you even when you don't realise it. And how little thanks we give to God for the change when it happens. But God is so faithful. He's working on you. You see, I've just got problems everywhere. John, you're a lovely guy. I think you're doing your very best, but you don't know what I'm going through. But what if what you're going through is conforming you to the image of Christ without you knowing it? Nothing is wasted in God's economy in the life of this child. And actually what the Lord is doing is using your troubles to deal with your heart. Who the Lord loves, He chases. Every child He receives, He chases. And He is, His love is not fickle friends. It's not weak, syrupy and sugary and like candy floss. When the Lord sets His love upon you, it's a determined love. And he'll be willing for you to misunderstand his dealings with you just to bring you through to the point where you are conformed to the image of the Son. It's not a playground in the Christian faith. It's dealing after dealing after dealing at But that's the purpose. To bring you to conformity is because the Lord loves you. He's the master potter shaping the clay. And you don't like the way his hands move into your life and interfere with you. But he's doing something. It's like the way pearl is created in an oyster. And in, with, with an oyster, a little bit of grit gets into the oyster and it aggravates it. So it puts a layer of something over this piece of grit, continually. Until finally, there is the bringing forth of this precious pearl 
Isn't it amazing? The Lord uses the grit. He allows things to get in that aggravate us. And we say, Lord, if you only got this grit out of my life, I would be able to serve you so wonderfully. Maybe if Paul would have been out of prison, he could have just gone everywhere preaching the gospel. Why did the Lord allow him to be confined to chains? Yes, but we don't know the future, you see. And the Lord Jesus confined Paul to chains so that you might have the letter that we have in front of us this week. His ways are so much, so much higher than ours. We rarely trace them through. And this illness that you have, this particular ailment that is troubling you and is bothering you, and you just think, Lord, just get this problem out of my life. And the Lord says, Dear child of God, I put it there. Because I'm doing something far more profound than your immediate happiness. I'm making ready for all eternity. It was Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, that would preach, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyelids. We have such a temporal perspective of things, even as believers. Let's look at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Wonderful. Now, look, verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. We're talking about the hope of his calling. So if the Lord foreknew you, and as a result of that predestined you, when it came to time, he called you. What does it say? Then, sorry, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified. Oh, dear friend, you see, the problem is we have a lack of knowledge of the revelation of these truths. You see, you and I can have an academic knowledge of justification. And we need it in a way. We need the theoretical knowledge of what things are in the language that we live in. Of course we do. But we need that knowledge to get into our hearts. If you've been born again of the Spirit, if you've been called of God, that means the Lord, my friend, no matter how you feel this morning, has justified you. That means Almighty God declares you righteous in His sight. Now, if God declares you righteous, who can condemn you? But you're under a weight of condemnation because you're not living in the good of your justification. And because of your lack of spiritual knowledge of your justification, you find yourself under a weight of condemnation. And you try loving others when you're under condemnation. <laughs> you won't get very far. But when you realize what the Lord's done in you, the love of God just shakes abroad. You just can't help loving people, can you? When you realize what the Lord has done for you, but you say, oh, but I've just got this point. 
on top of me. When was the last time you went to bed and you meditated on a verse about the justification of it before you went to sleep? You sleep better. We need to realise what's happened to us if we're to come into the blessing of it. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. Glory, you see? Then he also glorified. It's as though it's in the past tense, isn't it? It's as though it's already happened, isn't it? Isn't that the way you read Romans 8? Let me do it again. And whom he justified, hopefully, in due season, they'll be glorified. <laughs> then he also glorified. If you are born of the Spirit, your hope, the hope of your calling, is glory. Now, the reason that doesn't excite us as it should, and of course, all of us should be raising our hands, praising the Lord, thinking this is a man, of course, we're, it's the glory of the Lord. Because we haven't seen much. Like just a glimpse. Have you met that before? Just a glimpse of something in your spirit. Of the glory of the Lord. It's like a joy comes over It's not carnal, it's not earthly, it's just immense. Joy unspeakable and full of glory, says Peter. It was the God of glory that appeared to Abraham. And got him out of there at the captains. Why did Abraham follow the Lord? It was the God of glory that appeared to him. We need to see something of the Lord. Okay, now, coming to an end. How do we get to glory? I've just mentioned this beautiful chain from the foreknowledge of God to the glory of God in the book of Romans. But the question is, how do we get there? Well, that's a little difficult. If you look at glory in your New Testament, you'll find that glory and suffering go together. Look carefully. You'll find glory and the word suffering never too far away from each other. As a believer, if you suffer for the Lord Jesus, there's a greater and eternal way to glory coming your way. That's what the word says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 17 says this. Let me read it to you. Paul says, verse 16, For which cause we faint not. Don't faint. You're going through hardship. Don't faint. Don't give in. But though our outward man perish, in other words, we're all getting a bit older, and every year we come back, there may be one or two more wrinkles. Imperfections, shall we say. 
We can gloss over them with our beauty creams and whatnot. But at the end of the day, they keep on coming back, don't they? Lions on my forehead and whatnot. The outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. That's astonishing statement. Have you ever thought of it? Then it says in verse 17, for our light affliction. Does anybody here think they suffered on this earth as much as Paul the Apostle? Anybody like to be brave enough to raise their hands? And yet he calls his affliction light. Now, how is that possible unless you put that up against something else? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, my moments feel like hours. My hours feel like days, and my days feel like weeks. When you're going through it, it feels like it's longer, not less. But Paul's saying it's momentary. Just here today, come tomorrow. That's, that's, that's how Paul views your suffering and mine. Here today, come tomorrow. Momentary. which is far from a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How amazing. It's viewing everything in the light of eternity that changes us all about. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Paul says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who is subject to the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and traveleth in pain together unto man. It's yearning for our liberty. The whole creation. You may not see it in the creation, but the whole creation is yearning for our liberty. They come into the liberty of the Son of God. The glory of the Lord is coming. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 1 Peter 5 verse 10, right at the end now, just hanging there with me. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle. Notice what he says, the God of all grace, who has called you unto his eternal glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've been called unto the Lord's eternal glory. But notice what he says at the beginning of the verse. May the God of all grace. Why does he say that? You know, these names of the Lord are not in there by happenstance or by some kind of arbitrary feeling of a sentence. There's nothing 
arbitrary in the Lord's works. Every time he mentions something, it's a purpose. That's why you have that verse in verse 17 of Ephesians 1 that says, the Father of glory. It's interesting, isn't it? That he's called the Father of glory. In this place, he says, the God of all grace. Why? Because if you're to get to glory, something's going to happen. You're going to have to suffer. None of us like this bit. We're going to go through things for the sake of the Lord's refining in our lives. But the God of all grace will give you grace to get through it. And he will not allow you to be overloaded beyond what you can bear. But even with everything that he goes through, he will carry the weight with us. He will not allow us to go beyond what we can bear. He knows how much we can take. And even when we're going through it, the Lord will be close beside us. And his grace will be there. And when Paul asked the Lord that had taken away of and his own problem that he pleaded with the Lord three times for, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The grace of God doesn't only mean the unmerited favour of God, it means the enabling strength of God. So God will get you there. Do you believe he's faithful to do it? And even what you're going through, God has purposes in it. May the Lord help us to come through to spiritual knowledge. I'm going to end with one verse, Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is our prime example. Let me end with you. Thank you for your time. We've got a few minutes over. Hebrews 2. For it became him whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captive of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the Lord Jesus suffered and bled and died on Calvary and took the full weight of God's wrath upon himself that belonged to you and me so that he might bring many sons one day to glory. Hallelujah. For the hope of our calling and for the one who calls us is faithful. He will do it. Let us hold on Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that all that has been of you, you would write on our hearts. Anything out from myself, I pray for your pardoning, and we pray that you just keep with us what has been of you. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen.